together. Father, you know our needs better than we know them ourselves. And Lord, you have given us your word, and you have given us yourself. Lord, I pray that by means of this ancient text that's before us, these words that you spoke to Abraham and this passage that you inspired Moses to write, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to know that you are our shield, our very great reward. Lord, I pray that everyone hearing the sound of my voice would know what it is to be counted righteous, regarded as righteous, not because of what we have done, but because we trust you, we believe you by faith. And Lord, I pray that you would cause the truth that that those who believe are, are fully and completely reconciled before you and declared righteous by you. Lord, I pray that that truth would free us from guilt and shame. I pray that it would free us from legalistic impulses. I pray that it would free us from a selfishness and a miserly stinginess. I pray, Lord, that it would free us to worship you with open hearts, with nothing held back, and I pray that it would free us to love others as Christ has loved us. Lord, we ask that you would make the truth of the gospel like a whole cloth woven from top to bottom throughout, one united, solid piece that, that is the clothing of the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I pray that through this you would give us courage, that you would give us a love that's like your own, a patience and a kindness and a gentleness, a tenderness, and at the same time a readiness to contend for the faith that once for all has been entrusted to us. Lord, we ask that you would make us whole by the gospel. We pray that by means of this, this reality that you are our God, that you have made the covenant with us and that you have declared us righteous by faith. Lord, we pray that this, these truths would be so real to us that we can build our houses upon them and that when the floods rise and the rains fall, we will not be washed away. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves into your keeping now, praying that you would help us and bless us and build us up in the faith. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll be looking this morning at Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. So we'll just take the first part of this chapter this morning. And as we come to this passage, I want to remind you where we've been. And, and this is really relevant for what we're going to see here, because um, all of these things are in play as we look at what happens between God and Abram right here in Genesis 15. So the, the creator God makes a very good creation, and there's no sin in it, and there's no death in it, and everything is exactly as he wants it to be. And then he entrusts the dominion over that very good creation to uh, the first man and woman, to Adam and Eve, and amazingly, stunningly, faithlessly, they doubt his character, and they rebel against him. They transgress the one prohibition that he has given to them. And, and I don't think we, we've yet reflected 
long enough and deeply enough on the reality that they had every reason to trust God. And the serpent was able to tempt them away from trusting him. Well, by means of that sin, they brought death into the world. Adam specifically brought death into the world and God's judgment and a curse on the land. But God also makes a promise about the seed of the woman. And, and God indicates in Genesis 3.15 and following passages that through this seed of the woman, he's going to overcome death. He's going to cleanse the world and he's going to renew everything. And then in Genesis, we see them tracing the line of descent of the seed of the woman. There's a 10-member genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, and then you get the flood story. And I would just observe here that what we see there is God visiting justice. God bringing his righteousness to bear upon human sin. And the whole world, all flesh, is, is destroyed by means of the flood. But there's mercy God saved the world, saved humanity through Noah and those with him on the ark. And then they, they get a new start. And still, though, Genesis 8.21 tells us that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And then we, we have another 10-member genealogy in Genesis 11 that walks us from Noah's son Shem down to Abram. And then God makes these promises to Abram. And he promises him three things. He promises him land... And I've, I've indicated that that land should be understood as the starting point from which God is going to retake the whole world. So what's the Bible's big problem? Uh, man rebelled against God and brought sin and death into the world. What's God's big solution? Well, he's promised land to Abram. He promised seed, which means offspring, to Abram. And that offspring promised to Abram descends from the offspring promised about the woman, the, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. So that offspring is going to be the savior of the world. There's, there's kind of a, 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 a dynamic, though, between the one and the many. One offspring, many offspring. And we'll see some of that here in Genesis 15. Um, so, so land, offspring, and blessing. So through sin, curse comes into the world. Judgment comes into the world. But God promises blessing to Abram. So look with me at Genesis 12, and I'll just draw your attention to verse 4. And we know that chapter 11, verse 30 tells us that Sarah is barren. Chapter 12, verse 4 tells us Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So this is an old man with a barren wife. And then if you look over at Genesis 16, verse 16, we, we learn here that Abram was 86 years old. When Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then look at 17.1. Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to, to him there in 17.1. So he's 75 in 12.5. He's 86 in 16.16. And then he's 99 in 17.1. And so sometime between when he's 75 and 86, the events of Genesis 15 happen. And that's relevant for us because of what we're going to see here. So let's, let's drop in now and look at Genesis 15, where we're going to see here in, in verses 1 through 6 that God's promise prompts faith, which God counts as righteousness. I'm going to say that again. If you're taking notes and you want to, you want to say, what does Pastor Jim want, want me to take away today? This is what I want you to hear. God's promise prompts faith... Okay, so God makes a promise, and people believe that promise. And when people believe that promise, God counts that faith as righteousness. God's promise prompts faith, which God counts as righteousness. That's the main idea of this passage. Look at verse 1. After these things, and when you read a clause like that, you should think, what things? Well, um, Genesis 13, remember, this is where Abram and Lot separate. Genesis 14, Lot gets taken captive. He gets carried off. And there's this four-king coalition from the, 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 what we now refer to as Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers and over in that area. And they've come over to the land of promise and they've, they've captured, they've defeated five kings and carried Lot off captive. And Abram gets these 318 trained men born in his household, which again, this indicates that he's got a big operation. He's got a lot of people who are part of his household, 
And 318 of these guys, at least, have been trained for battle to protect all the flocks and herds and for problems like this. When uh, somebody that Abraham is in covenant with gets carried off captive and Abram gets these 318 guys and they go, they go ambush this four-king coalition and bring Lot and all the plunder back after these things. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And, and it, when, you, when you encounter a phrase like that, you know, we're so used to reading the Bible that this is a little bit like coming to Shakespeare for the first time for us. I remember when I was in college and I, I took a Shakespeare class and the professor remarked on how when people read Shakespeare for the first time, they have this experience of encountering all these phrases that they're used to. And, and, and one, the, the professor recounted how uh, one student actually said to him, I love reading Shakespeare, but he uses so many cliches. Well, actually, he's the originator of all of these phrases, Shakespeare is. And this is the origin of an extremely common phrase. In the rest of the Bible, you'll read the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and just fill in the blank with the prophet. You'll probably find it. The word of the Lord came to, but actually this phrase is the first time it occurs, and this phrase only occurs twice in Genesis. Only two times in the whole book of Genesis does this phrase, the word of the Lord came to, happen. One is right here in verse 1. The other is in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that what we're about to read is really significant, profoundly significant. So Abram is this old man who's got this promise, and maybe he's been stewing on this promise for a number of years, five, seven years, maybe 10 years. We don't know how much time has passed between 12.5 and 15.1. But after these things, after the events in chapter 14 and 13, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. Now, this is another one of these really significant phrases in the Bible, and I would just, you don't have to write this verse down, but it's an interesting verse. Numbers 12, verse uh, 6, this is when Aaron and Moses, Aaron and Miriam, sorry, have spoken against Moses, which in itself is, is one of those things that's always shocking and always encouraging at the same time, because here's Moses, the man of God, God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Moses, you know, he's the guy that brings the ten plagues against Egypt. And he, they, they've seen him part the Red Sea. And under his ministry, the manna from heaven and the water from the rock have come. And his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, find a reason to complain about him. And they've spoken against him. And now the Lord comes and rebukes them. And this is what he says here in Numbers 12. Verse 6, he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Now, the reason I'm drawing attention to this is because Genesis 15:1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And then later in the passage, a deep sleep is going to come upon Abram. And, and this is so profoundly uh, uh, intriguing, because all through the rest of the Bible, you're going to have prophets like Zechariah who are going to receive these visions in the night. You know, Zechariah is going to describe for us these visions that he has at night, and Daniel is going to have these visions at night. And now in Genesis 15, here's Abram having a vision, and, and you know, night's going to fall, and, and then he's going to have the, be in this deep sleep when these other events happen. Um, so, so this is the way the Lord makes himself known to a prophet. So Genesis 15 is not overtly saying Abram is a prophet, but all the terminology is there. And a few chapters later, in chapter 20, actually, the Lord is going to tell Abimelech in, in Genesis 20, verse 7, that Abram is a prophet. So what we're experiencing here in Genesis 15 is the Lord revealing himself to the prophet Abram. And and it's one of these first times, you know? What, what I mean is, Abram is the first prophet in the Bible uh, to whom the word of the Lord comes in this way. And then this is going to set the pattern for the rest of the Bible. All the other prophets, when they, when they think about, how am I going to describe the Lord revealing himself to me? They're going to use the words of Genesis 15.1. The word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. In a vision, 
Numbers 12, 7, 12, 6, and 7. This is how the Lord reveals himself to his people. So Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. And, and I think we should ponder, why would the Lord need to tell Abram not to fear? But before I start reflecting on that, let me just observe. Recently, our family, well, the older kids and my wife and I, we watched the uh, Tortured for Christ documentary. I think that it's easy for you to find. You can watch this for free online. If you just Google, you know, Richard Warmbrandt, Tortured for Christ, you can watch this thing. And Warmbrandt, he, he went through the whole Bible. Now, I haven't checked his work, but he went through the whole Bible and found that there are over 365 times when God, through the scriptures, tells his people, do not fear. Do not fear. Over and over again. Now, you know, he's counting different ways that the Lord says this. But here, here's something for us to take and, and apply. Our God, the creator of the world, the one who has initiated the, pro, the program of salvation, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, right above this, Genesis 14, verse 19, he is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He says to us, fear not. And Wormbrandt says there's one for every day of the year. There's a fear not for every day of the year. As I was thinking about, about this passage, I was reminded of this great scene in uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia in The Magician's Nephew when they come into this blank world, this new world, and Aslan, the lion who represents God, he begins to sing the world into existence. And those who know him, those who love him, they are simply in awe that, that one so powerful could, could do something so beautiful. And, and they're just worshiping as, as the lion with this low rumble and then this growing symphony calls the world into existence. But there are also people present who hate God. And, and there's this wicked witch named Jadis who wants to kill Aslan. And what she does is she takes this, this piece of a lamppost and she throws it at him and it hits him right in between the eyes and he doesn't even respond. It's as though nothing has even happened. It just glances off. And then there's this old man there who makes some comment about how this is a great place if it weren't for that lion. And what he would really like to do is to get a big game hunter and come and shoot that lion. And then one of the worshipers says to him, you really think a gun could kill that lion? Fear not. There is nothing. There is no weapon. There is no scheme. There is no coalition. There is no movement that will dethrone the God of the Bible. Fear not, he says to us. And then it just gets better. Look at what the Lord says here in verse 1. Well, what, before we go on, let me, let me, let's reflect. Why would God tell Abram, fear not? Well, let's just think about the context. Right before this, Abram has gathered up 318 men, and he's gone chasing after four kings. I guarantee you every one of those four kings had more than 300 men. And those four kings are brutal people. They are vicious people. I mean, if you read some of the accounts of what they do to their captives and the people that they, that they conquer in the ancient Near East, it is not pretty. You know, G Geneva Conventions, rules of warfare, that stuff, nobody's enforcing that stuff. And nobody's bothering with that stuff. I mean, these, these are bloodthirsty, vicious enemies. And Abram has just ambushed them. And I suspect they've got a pretty good idea of where he is. I mean, that's cause for fear, isn't it? Yeah, I got 318 trained guys, but I'm a sitting duck out here in the open. And if those guys decide to come looking for me, if they come in strength, how am I going to fight them off? And the Lord says, fear not. Look at what he says next there. I am your shield. I am your shield. That's why Abram should fear not, even though he has defeated those four kings. 
even though there's a five-king coalition in, in the vicinity, in, in his region, that he has just sort of thumbed his nose at, right? He comes back from the victory, and the king of Sodom tries to act all magnanimous and all generous with Abram, and Abram is pretty dismissive to him. If you look back at chapter 14, verse, verses 22, and I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Well, that's the kind of thing that offends people, right? That's the kind of thing that guys decide, you know, I think I'll subjugate you and tax you out of existence now. Or, or I think I'll just come in and take you out and murder you and, and take all, all that belongs to you for myself. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. In recent days, I've been, I've been uh, listening to Band of Brothers, which is uh, the story of the 101st Airborne and how they, uh, all, all of their wonderful things that they did in uh, World War II. And, you know, you, you hear these accounts of these young men who, uh, when America was attacked, and um, that, you know, the Japanese had come in, and Hitler is, is growing in power in Europe, and, and uh, Winston Churchill was very clear as he tried to get America to enter World War II. Winston Churchill was explaining how uh, America should not think that if Hitler is successful, they'll be free from his tyranny. He, he would, he, I mean, it, you know, it would have been a bad scene. And uh, these guys, um, they, they, they went and did wonderful things. And the, these were genuinely heroic men. And Denny and I were talking about this guy, Richard Winters, Dick Winters. Maybe you've seen the, the, the series Band of Brothers or read the book. It's, it's a great story. Um, Dick Winters talked about how the night that they were dropped. So these guys, they start in England, and they're flown in a plane over the beaches of, of Normandy and then dropped behind enemy lines. They jump out of a plane into the darkness. And uh, Dick Winters said the whole plane ride over before he leaped out of that plane into utter darkness, into, into war. The, the whole plane ride over, he's praying to the Lord. This is a man of faith. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Um, Abram, I think, not only has causes for fear from the enemies that are all around him, Abram has causes for fear from the obstacles to the promises that we've talked about. I can, re I, I can relate to the fears from the enemies, right? There's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now that's disturbing, that is troubling, that is cause for concern. And we should hear these words from the Lord. Fear not, I am your shield. And, and Abram's got these promises. I'm going to give you seed, Abram. And I think Abram is like, well, I'm, oh, it, it, he's over 75 now. And I've been married all these years and my wife is still barren. No children have come. And, and I can hear him, I can imagine him saying, I'm afraid... I don't know how this is going to happen. Land. Well, there are these kings of Sodom and all these other kings that we read about in chapter 14 who happen to inhabit this land. Blessing. And I, I suspect that Abram probably felt like maybe you felt. I know I've felt this way. I don't deserve God's blessing. Why would God bless me? And so in, in spite of these things, the Lord says to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting kind of wordplay here in, in the Hebrew, because this word that's translated shield is actually the same word that's up in verse 20 when it says, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies. So the, the same, the same uh, spelling, it's, it's the Hebrew word, uh, magain, that, that same term means delivered in verse 20, and it means shield in verse 1. And I would just like for us to think about what a shield is. A shield is protection, isn't it? It's something that you put in front of yourself, and it's going to be between you and your enemies and whatever projectiles they're going to try to hit you with. And God Almighty is saying to Abram, 
I am your shield. And right after that, look at what he says. The, the ESV renders this, your reward shall be very great. And if we think again contextually, Abram has just refused the plunder that the king of Sodom offers him. The king of Sodom says, you can take all this, just give me the people, you take the spoil. And Abram says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord not to take anything from you. And God says to Abram, your reward will be very great. That's the way the ESV renders it. Maybe you're familiar with the NIV or the King James Version, which I, I prefer these translations. I don't often say that about the NIV, but I think this is a better translation. The NIV renders this, uh, I am your shield, your very great reward. God is saying to Abram, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. I, I, I think that's, I mean, in, in Hebrew, the two terms are in apposition to one another. They both refer to the same thing. So grammatically, I think that's a better translation, actually. And it, it still connects to the plunder offered by the king of Sodom. I am your shield, your very great reward. Right after that scene when, um, when the child responds to Uncle Diggory, you think a gun could kill that lion? The lion says to the animals, he says, I give you Narnia. And then he says to them, I give you myself. Would it ever have occurred to you that the living God would say to sinful creatures, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I'm, he, God is saying to us, I give you myself. I will be your reward. It's like the Lord is saying, you can have me. And we don't even have a concept for this. We don't even know how to... What does it mean for God to give us himself? Well, this passage helps us understand. Look, look down at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's what it means. God is saying, I am pledging myself to you. I am entering into a formal relationship with you. You are mine. And amazingly, I am yours. And this is what he says all through the Old Testament. You will be my people. I will be your God. And he helps us further also. Moses helps us and God helps us because we're only going to get through verse 6. But in this passage, when it says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Do you remember where we've seen a deep sleep before this in the Bible? It's Genesis chapter 2. Only to, to this point in the Bible, only two places it's happened. You know what happens when the deep sleep falls on Adam? The Lord God took a rib and he built from the rib the woman and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And, and then um, there's this conclusion drawn from that episode about marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So I submit to you that what, what Moses means to do here is say, this covenant into which the Lord has entered with Abram, you should think of it like the covenant that God instituted between the man and the woman in the garden. That's what, so marriage is given to us as something that we can use to understand how we're supposed to think about God. Something given to us to understand what the Lord pledges himself to do. He's going to lead us like a man should lead his wife. He's going to protect us like a husband should protect his wife and children. He's going to provide for us. Can you imagine Almighty God making these kinds of promises? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. 
your very great reward. Now, the Lord is forming this covenant with Abram, right? And the Lord is, he's promising this relationship between himself and Abram. And that's the context in which I think we we should understand the dialogue that's going to take place between the Lord and Abram. So the Lord has just promised to Abram protection for the present, I'm your shield, and a guarantee for the future, your very great reward. I'll protect you now, I'll reward you in the future. And, and, And these promises are as certain and reliable as God's own character. The one who is the same yesterday and today and forever is the one who is saying, I am your shield, your very great reward. I got you now, I got you forever. And so with that stated, these questions that come from Abram shouldn't be heard as like skeptical and accusatory questions. They could be read that way, but that would be to read them out of context. I think these questions should be read as genuine questions, not as like attacks on the Lord. So verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, and and uh, you'll notice that, that God there, the D, is like a small caps. So what you've got here is actually the Hebrew word for Lord and then Yahweh. O Lord, Adonai, Yahweh. So Abram, he's, he's addressing God with the covenant name. So he knows he's in covenant with God. He knows he's safe. This is really, this is really tender here, I think. O Lord, Yahweh, what will you give me? Okay, so... We shouldn't hear this as, you're not enough. I don't want you. No, I don't think that's the way we should hear it. I think we should hear it as something like, Lord, you promised me seed. And, and look at what he goes on to say. I continue childless. So I, we shouldn't hear this as, okay, you just promised to be a very great reward to me, or if we take it like the ESV, you just told me my reward would be very great. Well, what are you going to give me? Because that's not enough. I don't think we should hear it that way. I think we should hear it like, um, Lord, you made this promise about a child, and I'm kind of still waiting here. What will you... is Is that still good? Are you still planning to do that? What will you give me? And then, literally, the phrase there when he says, I continue childless, it's, it's always interesting, I think, to, to hear the literal expressions uh, because of what they communicate and, and what they reflect about people's assumptions. Literally, what he says is, I am walking stripped. And, and you know, in, in, our, in our English, sometimes if, if someone is, is without funds and they're broke, we might say, he's skint. You know, that that expression is sometimes used about people. And for Abram, not to have a child is analogous to that. For him not to have an heir is for him to be stripped. It's as though his nakedness is exposed to the world. His shame is seen by everybody because he doesn't have the blessing, the reward of an heir. What will you give to me for I continue childless? And then the language that, that is used here, again, is, is very interesting when he says, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then again in verse 3, Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, no seed. Lord, you promised seed. I'm looking for the seed of the woman. And again, I don't think it's merely self-interest because, because Abram knows Genesis 3.15. And Abram knows that his ancestors have been tracking the line of descent. So I think there's a little bit of I'm looking for your kingdom to come, Lord. That's what matters most to me. Not just me and my embarrassment about not not having a child, but your promise is to be fulfilled, and you've given me no offspring. I got no seed. And a member of my household, this guy Eliezer of Damascus, will be my heir. The term that's rendered there, will be my heir, is the same term that's going to be used of the people of Israel dispossessing the Canaanites. So... It's as though Abram is saying, 
this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, okay, he's got a, he, apparently he's got faith in Yahweh because he's named Eli, my God, Azer, my uh, help, my God is help. So he's probably worshiping the same God as Abram, but he's of Damascus. He doesn't descend from Abram's line. And so the line is going to be lost, and Abram is going to be dispossessed as this other guy inherits what belongs to Abram in the way that Israel is going to inherit what belongs to Canaan. And so we see here Abram's concern for, for God's kingdom, for the fulfillment of God's promise. And we see this in the context of the Lord saying, don't be afraid. Look, I know you're getting old. I know Sarah's barren. I'm aware of this. I know. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about how we are, we, we, we really are. I mean, COVID-19 has interrupted a lot of things, but we really do care about this neighborhood. And, and many of us have been up and down these streets repeatedly knocking on every one of these doors. And, and we regularly encounter people outside the walls of this building that we're trying to invite. And whether they live here or whether we live in the neighborhood, whether they live in the neighborhoods where you live or work with you or whatever, I suspect that like me, you, you talk to these people and you sort of feel like, my goodness, they're gonna, there are a lot of intellectual and emotional and spiritual hurdles between that person and conversion. And it looks, it, it, I mean, I, I'm afraid they're never going to believe the gospel. And the Lord says, fear not. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. You know, there's no better reward than what the Lord offers Abram here. There is no better reward. But note here, as we think on these things, what the Lord does not do. And this is, this is what is making this so difficult for Abram. The Lord doesn't come to Abram in this conversation and say, Abram, we're going to resolve it all right now. You're going to get the seed right now. You're going to get the land right now. And I'm going to defeat the serpent right now. And I'm going to make all things new right now. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He didn't do it for Abram, and he's not doing it for us. And as I was reflecting on this, you know, I think, there, I think one, of the, one of the intellectual and moral and spiritual hurdles between a lot of people and the gospel is, well, if God is good and he's all-powerful, why doesn't he fix all these things? Whether we're talking about little girls being afflicted with cancer or societal problems, what, whatever the case may be, we can look at all that. And, you know, the Bible's got some answers for that. I'm just going to give you two scriptures that I think speak directly to why hasn't God fixed all this? This is Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40. And this is dealing specifically with the fact that God made these promises to Abram, and he waited his whole life on those promises. Hebrews 11, 30, all these, all these people in Hebrews 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't get the new heavens and new earth. They didn't get the world made new. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think the author of Hebrews is saying, God wanted to give us a chance to live. God wanted to give us a chance to believe. God wanted us to be made perfect with them, raised from the dead. And so God allowed the world to continue in this broken and devastated way so that we could get a chance to live. And, and really, the other verse is 2 Peter 3, 9, where I think Peter's saying something very similar. He says uh, that God, wanting all to come to repentance, was waiting. I, in other words, I think everybody that God has appointed to come to repentance is going to come to repentance before God fulfills all that he has spoken. So the Lord makes these promises to Abram. Abram's wrestling with, what am I, how do I... What are you going to do, Lord? You've made these promises. And, and as I was thinking about this, um, I think that we should all ask ourselves this question. 
We should all think about the character of God, think about God's plan and program, and we should, we should look square in the face this reality, which I think is a huge evangelistic hurdle for people in our, in our culture right now. If God doesn't do what we think he should, how should we respond? And what I want to propose to you is we should respond by trusting his wisdom and his knowledge and his power and his love. In other words, we should trust his character. If he doesn't do what we think he should do, I mean, I, I would love for, for the gospel to go out from this place and everybody in the immediate vicinity to believe it, and then all come to church here, and then it just multiply and spread all through the city of Louisville so that the whole city's a believer. That's what I'd love to see happen. Everybody that lives here believes the gospel. Everybody in the state of Kentucky believes the gospel, and, and God receives from them the praise and the thanks and the adoration that he deserves. That'd be awesome. And I keep talking to people. And they keep saying, I keep inviting them to church and trying to explain the gospel. Yeah, I'll come Sunday. And then they keep not coming. You know? And I keep talking to people and they're like, oh, you're God. Yeah, I know you're God. Yeah. He's, essentially what they're saying is he's not a good God. And, and we plead with them and try to convince them. No, he is a good God. He is worthy of your trust. He loves people. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And it's devastating for them to say, that's not good enough. Or, I don't want that. Or, I don't think I need that. Look at verse 4. Abram says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be, be my heir. And, you know, if, this were, if these were accusatory questions... Or if God were not the God he is. The response that the Lord gives could be very different, couldn't it? This, this makes me think of the Garden of Eden. When after that painful rebellion of Adam and Eve, which was so completely unwarranted. And the Lord comes and he, he doesn't smash them. He doesn't come screaming at them. He doesn't come and grab them by the scruff of the neck. He doesn't do any of the things that we would expect. He comes and he says... Adam, where are you? Adam, who told you that you were naked? And look at, you know, the, the Lord has every right at this point to say, given you no offspring, I told you I was going to do it. I've kept my promise for 20 generations now. What makes you think that in your case, my character is going to change? I mean, if I was the Lord, that'd probably be what would be rising up in me. But look at the Lord, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And it's like God is speaking to his, his small and vulnerable child. This man shall not be your heir. Abram, I promised you offspring. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abram, I told you this before. I'm happy to tell you again. Don't. Your worries are unfounded. I'm going to keep my promise. And that phrase, your very own son, that, that whole phrase is only used one other place in the whole Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when the Lord says to David, I will raise up your seed after you. And the ESV renders it, who shall come from your own body. You could render it that same way here, but it's the same phrase. You could translate it, your very own son, in 2 Samuel 7, 12, just like they translate it here, it's the exact same phrase. What that's doing is it's saying the seed promised to David is the seed promised to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. God is so kind and gentle with Abram. You're very own. I'm going to keep the promise, Abram. The line of descent is going to continue, and it's going to go all the way down to Jesus himself. And then... Verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. The numbering, I think, is important in view of what's going to happen next. But think about what the Lord does. Let's just think about the imagery. 
Maybe you've been someplace where there's not a lot of what people call light pollution. And, and you've been there on a cloudless night and you've looked up at the night sky and you've seen against this blanket of, of black, these pinpoints of light that just seem completely and totally innumerable. And we know now from the scientists that they practically are innumerable in their, in their number. And look at what the Lord says. Then he said to him at the end of verse 5, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring are going to be like this. What does that mean? Innumerable. Now, first thing I want you to think about is the way that there's one seed that's been promised to Abram, and then there's a night sky full of stars, plural, seed, promised to Abram. So the Lord is, is promising, I'm going to give you one descendant, and I'm also going to give you a bunch of descendants. And there's a play on the way that, like our word deer, you know those nice, pretty Bambi animals, you can say, uh, look, there's a deer. Or you can say, look, there's a whole flock of deer, right? And you don't put an S on the end. It sounds wrong to do that. Or seed in our, in our language. There's one seed or there's a whole bag of seed. Same thing, same dynamic in Hebrew. There's one individual seed, Jesus, and then there's a whole bunch of seed. And Gabe, Gabe referenced this text, Philippians 2, earlier, um, in which you shine like stars in the universe holding to the word of life. We are the seed of Abram. We are the seed of Abraham. The, the descendants, those who follow in the footsteps of Abraham. So uh, God says, your offspring... Now, think again. So there's one in the many thing going on. And then think of the imagery. You've got the black night sky, and then you've got these glorious pinpoints of light. And that's what believers are in the world. That's what believers are in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a dark world... But the light of Christ shines in our lives as we, as we believe the gospel and then try to live out the gospel. Um, think with me of Romans chapter 4. I'll just read you the verse real fast where this is quoted. Romans 4 verse 18. Uh, Paul says, In hope, Abram believed against hope. And we talked about this when we, went, when we went through Romans. What that means, hope against hope, it's like Abram has no right to hope for this. But against all that expectation, he's hoping. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Why is he believing that? Because God said. That's why he's believing it. Why should you believe that there are going to be people from every tribe and people and tongue and nation? Because God said that they would all be there around the throne. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number him, number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You see what, what's happening here. Abram is saying, Lord, you haven't given me any seed. And the Lord says, come outside, Abram. Look at the heavens. Your offspring are going to be like this. And, and, and what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promise. And then look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. What this means is, Abram... Now, it, it makes it sound like God said this. Abram responded in faith. But actually, you, you, could, you could legitimately translate this, and he had believed the Lord. So it, the, way, the way that the syntax is presented in Hebrew, this, this is rightly interpreted not as the beginning of Abram's faith. Yes, he responds to this promise in faith, but he's already done that before, hasn't he? I mean, when the Lord said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, Abram takes off in Genesis 12. He goes. So Abram's already believing, and then he gets new revelation, and he keeps believing. He, he trusts what God says. That's what this means. He believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted. 
It's a different word than the one that's used in verse four, uh, verse five, sorry. But there, there's a play here where the Lord says, "Look, Abram, count the scar, count the stars." And then Moses tells us, "The Lord counted Abram's faith as righteousness." Now, we should be very clear. Faith is not the same thing as righteousness. Righteousness is one thing. Faith is another. Righteousness is you live according to the standard. That's what righteousness is. Faith is somebody tells you something, you believe it. Different things. And, and I want you to feel the tension here. So I'm going to read you uh, Jeremiah chapter... I'm, I'm, we'll get to Jeremiah... Lord willing. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Listen to Proverbs 17, 15. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The Lord is saying... Abram, you believe my word. You believe my promise. I'm going to count that. I'm going to enumerate that as righteousness. And you know what the accuser says? The accuser says, you can't do that. He's not righteous. Those are not the same thing. Believing your promise is not living according to the standard. And uh, Mr. Yahweh, sir, the accuser says, let's think about this guy, Abram. Do you remember what he did with his wife, Sarah, when they went down into Egypt? told this little lie, and that results in her being in bondage. And uh, Mr. Yahweh, sir, do you remember what this guy Abram is going to do in the very next chapter of this book that we're reading, chapter 16? You know, it's, it's interesting the, the kinds of word plays that you get in the Hebrew text because um, the, the, the girl's name is Hagar, Ha-Gar. And, and uh, in Hebrew, Gar means sojourner. So Hagar's name could be translated the sojourner. And that terminology is going to be used later in the Bible. It's already used, actually, in Genesis 12 when Abram and Sarah go down to sojourn in Egypt. And then here in this passage, the Lord's going to tell Abram, your descendants are going to sojourn in a land not their own. And then in Deuteronomy, the Lord's going to say to them, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, so that, And now we've got this Egyptian girl in Genesis 16 whose name is the sojourner. And what Abram does to her is basically what Pharaoh did to Sarah. Pharaoh took Sarah. Abram's going to take Hagar. So it's almost as though Moses is very subtly saying um, the, the kinds of sins that Pharaoh committed, Abraham committed those same kinds of sins. He did. But Abram, the Lord mercifully revealed himself to Abram Abram responded in faith. Abram gets counted righteous. He's not righteous. And Moses is not trying to make you think he's righteous. In fact, in chapter 20, he's going to do it again. He's going to say to some foreign king, oh yeah, she's my sister. The foreign king's going to seize her. And, and, you know, the fathers in this room, I think think if Chris Birch or Gabe Molnar or Randall Breland or Matt D'Amico, if they were present when Abram said, oh yeah, she's my sister, they... No, she's not. What are you doing? You've got to protect that woman. They would not let that happen. After the first time it happened, they'd grab him by the shoulders. You can't do this with your wife. She's the channel of blessing. What are you doing? This is impermissible. No. Don't tell that lie anymore. You can't do that. They would not tolerate it for a second. And he keeps doing it. His son does it. Learned it from his father. Isaac commits the same sin with Rebekah. He's not righteous. Not not if we're talking about living according to the standard, righteous. How's he righteous? God counts him righteous. Why? Because he believes. Hey, listen, the gospel is scandalous. It's scandalous. If if I say to any one of you, I mean, there's a pastor that I used to listen to. He would say, "If, uh, if we knew about you, what God knows about you, we wouldn't let you in this building. And, and then he would say, but if you knew about me, what God knows about me, you wouldn't let me stand in this pulpit. And that's the truth. We would all, if we go by living according to the standard, we're done. 
you can forget it. Psalm 130, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Answer, nobody. Nobody. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, how can he do this and not come under the condemnation of Genesis, uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15? How can he do this? How can God be righteous and count wicked sinners who believe as righteous? Look with me at um, Jeremiah chapter 34. You don't have to turn there. I'll read to you what it says. And it informs what happens right here in uh, Genesis 15. Uh, Jeremiah 34, verses 17 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Okay, so the Lord had commanded for Israel to proclaim liberty to their, their brothers in the year of release, the seventh year, and in the jubilee year, and they haven't done it. And so the Lord says, behold, I proclaim to you liberty, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. So God says, I'm bringing judgment against you. Then verse 18, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. That's the part we're after here. So what's going to happen later in this chapter as we keep reading is Abram is going to be instructed to kill these animals and then to, to lay them across from one another. And then when you enter into covenant, what you do is you walk between the pieces of the, the, the slain animals. And what you're saying is, if I don't keep the covenant, may this be done to me. And what's going to happen is the Lord's going to put Abram to sleep. Abram has separated, the, he's killed the animals, cut them in half. And then a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which represents God himself. God alone is going to pass between the pieces of the animals. So God is saying, I'm going to count Abram righteous. And if the terms of that covenant are not kept, may what's been done to these animals be done to me. And the terms of the covenant are not going to be kept. Abram's going to break the covenant. He's going to keep right on being a sinner. And all the seed of Abram, physical descent, spiritual descent, all the seed of Abram, we are all sinners. And so what was done to the animals is done to the one who passed between the parts. When, when Jesus passed the night weeping in prayer and blood, when the nails passed his hands and feet and the spear his side, and he confirmed the covenant, giving life by his death, righteousness by his sin-bearing sacrifice. This covenant is sure. He is our shield. He is our very great reward. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that's the only way that the righteous God can be righteous and count sinners as righteous. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we hope you'll hear these words. And we hope that these words will be like the living God saying, let there be light. And we hope that, that this light of Christ will shine in your hearts and that you'll believe this. And we'd love to visit with you after the service about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. The person sitting next to you would probably be thrilled to talk with you about what it looks like to believe, to be counted righteous by faith. The last thing I want to say about this is one of the things about loving one another is that we try to look at one another as God looks at us. And if God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ because we're repentant sinners who believe the gospel, we want to look at one another and see that's a believer. That's somebody that the living God has declared to be righteous. This is, this is what will enable us to continue in hope, to continue in faith, to bear all things, as we're called to in 1 Corinthians 13. This is, this is part of what it looks like to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, this gospel is better news 
than we ever could have imagined. Lord, we never would have dreamed up, dreamed up the possibility that you would make a covenant with us, that you would pledge yourself as the surety of that covenant, and that when we broke the covenant, you would keep it. But Lord, this is just what you've done. Father, help us to believe that you are our shield, that you are our very great reward, and that you will keep every promise that you've made. Lord, we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you passed between the pieces and that the sword passed into his side, that the blood and water flowed, and that you washed us clean. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.